0: Hi there. Thanks for joining Learn With Us. This is Nikos, your host. Today on the show we have Mark Voltman, who is the author of a new book by Manning called Svelte and Sapper in Action. How's it going today, buddy? Going great. Whereabouts are you come from?
1: I'm in the St. Louis area in Missouri in the
0: U.S. Oh, great, great. So I have a big announcement today. Um, I'm very proud to announce that today is the first sponsored episode, and it's by a uh, a publisher that i really respect manning whose books are actually very concise very detailed and in depth i first started reading their literature back in uh i think it was 2012 when i was reading c sharp in depth and um i'm really happy to have them on so basically mark and uh manning have um, produced svelte and sapper in action and um it's basically uh Manning's books are from for experts like community leaders, academics, technology creators. So we've um, got a very high standard of people that they uh, allow to publish with them. And uh, also please to know that pleased to let you know that if you listen to this podcast, we've got a special deal. And um, Mark's book, you can get a discount. And um, amongst other types of um, books, there. So if you use Pod Learn Twenty at the checkout, you get a forty percent off your first Manning order including print books, ebooks and videos. And, um, yeah, that's it. I'll leave the link in the show notes. So thank you, Manning. Very happy to have you as my first sponsor. And let's go. So so, what got you into Svelte, Mark?
1: Well, I've been doing web development with a lot of other frameworks over the last, uh, say, nine years or so. I started off using jQuery, and then I moved on to Angular 1. Uh, and then about the time that Angular 2 was supposed to be coming out, but taking a really long time to do so, I started looking at other options. So then I got into React and did that for quite a while. I still do a lot of React development. Uh, Then I spent some time using Vue, uh, and then Svelte came out, and I was really blown away by how much simpler it makes so many things. And so these days, I try to use Svelte as much as I can, just because it feels so much simpler than the other frameworks.
0: So you also you saw Vue coming out. Why were you more excited about Svelte versus Vue?
1: Uh, well, so when, when I started looking into Vue, I wasn't yet aware of Svelte. And uh, other people in my company were using Vue, and I felt like I needed to have some experience with it to understand what they were doing. Sure. And, and I like Vue quite a bit. I probably have a slight preference for React over Vue. Uh, but I like Svelte yeah. way, way more than either of those.
0: Okay, so what um, distinguishes Svelte from like, other approaches to building web applications?
1: Yeah, so there's several things about it. Uh, one thing that strikes you immediately is how easy it is to implement a component and the really small amount of code that you write to do that. Uh, a feature that is talked about quite a bit is how much smaller the bundled size of your app turns out to be. As a developer, on a day-to-day basis, I'm not so much concerned about that, I'm concerned about my own productivity, but that's a nice side benefit that I know my apps are going to download really quickly for the users of the apps. Uh, And then just the way that state works inside Svelte is really nice compared to the other approaches I've
0: seen. So can you explain a bit more about what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, so in the React world, it's very popular to use Redux for managing your state. Yeah, and, and so you write a reducer and you dispatch actions and you're being very careful to make sure that your state is always uh, immutable. And there's just a lot of boilerplate code you have to write to make that work. In the view world, you have okay. frameworks like VueX for managing the state. And I use that quite a bit. And with both of those, I ended up deciding that it was more complicated than it needed to be. And so I wrote my own state management libraries to layer over the top of those and make that Mm -hmm. easier. And so those are out on NPM. The first one I created is called Redux Easy. And then the second one I created for Vue is called Vuex Easy. And And then it seemed the React world was moving toward using the context API instead of Redux. And so I looked into that. That also seemed more work than it should be. And so I created Context Easy. So those three state management libraries, uh, I like all of them a lot, of course, because I created them. But then when I started looking into Svelte and saw the way that you use stores, that's their state management approach, it uh, dawned on me that I have no need to create a Svelte Easy or a Stores Easy library because it's already easy enough. Uh, no need for me to do anything else.
0: Okay, so is this your, this your own personal company or some clients that you're working with?
1: So I, I'm a partner in a consulting company that is called Object Computing. Right. And so when I joined the company 23 years ago, we had 14 people. And uh, now we have almost 200 people working there. And so we're a uh, software consulting company, do work for a lot of companies in the St. Louis area, but also really around the world,
0: and we do a lot of training. Sweet, I'll leave a link to your company in the show notes as well. Thanks. So, um, what does it mean that Svelte is a compiler versus as framework? I right. That's quite a big misconception that people have.
1: Yeah, so with other frameworks like uh, Angular and React and Vue, when you are bundling up your code to uh, release an application, you're gonna be bundling up the library that goes with that. And uh, so you would hope that through tree shaking of the bundler that code you don't need will get eliminated, but there's still quite a bit of code that is either needed or it can't determine whether it's needed. And then you end up with this really large bundle size. And there's a lot of uh, benchmarks out there that will show you how much smaller resulting Svelte apps are. And so back to it being a compiler, what that means is that uh, you don't release your Svelte app with a Svelte library. Instead, this compiler looks at all of your components and it sees what features of Svelte you're using. And then it generates just the JavaScript code you need for that to run. Uh, so one nice benefit of that is that they can add all kinds of features to Svelte and they don't have to worry that they're bloating the size of your application because the compiler will only include the bits that it needs.
0: So when you, what do you mean by tree shaking for those that are maybe not familiar with it?
1: Right. So tree shaking is where a module bundler tries to determine uh, what things you're actually using. And so, for example, you might define some functions in your code that you never actually call. And so tree shaking is supposed to detect that and then not include the code for that part that isn't really being used.
0: Wouldn't that be caught by linting to say you're not using this variable?
1: Yeah, uh, that uh, often isn't caught when you're defining things that maybe you export from a file. And so it doesn't really know, did you actually import that somewhere else? A linter won't catch right. that. It'll catch things that you defined in one source file that you don't use in that source file. But as soon as right. you export it, it's not aware of what you're going to do with it.
0: Okay, cool, cool. So I guess with, um, the compiler will generate code and it won't generate, like, it won't add, say, a store if there's no. Store being used, or it won't add say, some various animation libraries or anything like that.
1: Exactly, and we can get into this more later about animation, but there's a lot of animation capabilities built into Svelte, and you're right, if you don't use them, then those won't be in your resulting bundle.
0: Okay, so how does Svelte avoid using like virtual DOM, like Reactor View, to, to perform like in a sense, batched updates or something like that. Like, how does it do it?
1: Right. So uh, just looking at React, uh, at a high level, what is happening is that every time it detects that there's a change to some state that a component uses, it's going to recreate a version of the DOM in memory and then look at the previous version of that and do a diff and determine what changes need to be made to the actual DOM. And so when you think about it it takes time to build that version of the virtual dom then it takes time to do the diff Uh, then it takes time to apply those changes to the dom and the difference in svelte is that it's essentially generating code that watches all of the pieces of the state and if you look at the generated code you'll see that there are parts where it says for example this div that you're about to render That depends on certain pieces of the state. And so if those pieces change, we need to regenerate that small part of the DOM. But it doesn't mean we have to regenerate DOM for the whole component. So on the React side, it would be generating the virtual DOM for the whole component. It doesn't know what needs to go to the actual DOM until it's done a diff against the entire virtual DOM of that component. Uh, So that... uh, makes it so Svelte doesn't need a virtual DOM because it's generating code so that each part of the DOM that it creates <laughs> is aware of what bits of state contribute to that.
0: So this, just to let my listeners know how clever this actually is, if you were writing a vanilla JavaScript application, you have all, pretty much the finest grain Controlled. So, if you have a bunch of elements, you're aware of exactly what needs to change, or something changes because you're, and you're not actually, you, you can work with elements non-destructively. So you are not you're not getting rid of them on memory. You're not creating new ones. You're just modifying certain parts of the of the the elements DOM structure. With felt, that code that's generated, it sort of knows how to write code in that way, but um, without you having the cognitive Overhaul of, of writing that code because because when you're writing you know vanilla JavaScript apps it, you have to really whenever when something changes you have to go in there with a, a scalpel and and get the DOM updates to work the way you want but Svelte is giving you that by, by for free in a sense would that be right That's exactly right. Yes, that's what's happening. Yeah. So um, how much of it an impact uh, for Have you made any applications in React? and Svelte that are like similar or have converted the codebase over?
1: I have. So if you look at my GitHub repo, which is mVolkman, I have versions of a to-do app application that I've implemented in React, in Vue, in Svelte. So all of those versions are out there and the Svelte version is quite a bit smaller. So I have some statistics on this and let me see if right. I can pull these up real quick here from some notes. And uh, all of this is also in the book.
0: Cool, I'll leave a link to your GitHub on the the show notes as well.
1: Right, Uh, so there's this website called uh, Real World Comparison of Front End Frameworks. And so they did some benchmarks and they reported that for this app that of course is more involved than just a to-do app, when they implemented it with Angular, Uh, the app was 134 kilobytes. With React, it was 193. With Vue, it was 42. And with Svelte, it was 10. 10. So that is very significant difference from the others.
0: Right. Um, I wonder if there's been any, like, large applications that have been converted over. Are you you aware of any? I'm not. I'm just
1: aware of these sort of benchmark sites at the moment.
0: Because I I do know that with um, there's a certain point in Svelte apps where, in a sense, the the it would be this the size would be larger for Svelte versus React, and um. Because like once the framework's in there, the code's there to do the, the stuff, and it's, it's like an engine. So there's 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 a fine balance that I, that I think the industry has to decide yet between. You know, if you can imagine a really mammoth mammoth app written in React, could it be ported to Svelte? Given that all the, there's no framework, everything would have to be generated by the compiler.
1: Right, that makes sense that that could be the case. Uh, So all of that checking of of what happens inside a component to know what has changed and to be able to update those parts of the DOM. So what you're saying is that perhaps in a React application, that bit is kind of factored out into the code of the virtual DOM and you only have that code in one place. Uh, So that's certainly a possibility. And uh, I suppose that's a reason why I don't really emphasize the bundle size quite as much as some other people do. For me, uh, despite that, a lot of this is about developer productivity for me and how easy is it for me to write the code and reason about it.
0: Yeah. I wonder if if there's a point where the compiler would like generate really huge nested, complicated logic. If you had a whole bunch of like reactive variables, um, maybe there's a, a sort of um, exponential growth of, of output. I mean, I don't know. I've not really done that much as well yet. So.
1: I suspect that that's a situation you could get if you force that to happen, but right. in a real application, it seems unlikely that a piece of the DOM you're wanting to generate depends on say a really large number of variables. Usually yeah. each chunk of the DOM depends on maybe one or two pieces of the state of that component.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I find that, that a lot of companies, they seem very reluctant to try Svelte. They're, they've got their React developers. They've got their vanilla JavaScript stuff going. Um, but um, I, th- I guess it's the risk is like there's not that many core maintainers. So there's basically it's like four or five or something. So I don't know. What would you say to companies that are wanting to try it out Yeah, I understand that point of view. Uh, That's
1: where everything starts from. You could say that Vue was in a similar place a few years ago. Uh, Yeah. But I think that there's so much excitement building around Svelte that I would expect uh, over the next year that the number of contributors is is just going to grow. Uh, And I've yet to run into a bug that was actually a bug in the Svelte framework with all that I've done so far. Uh, So I wouldn't be nervous about that. I guess I would look at this as... Is this really a way that you could cut your development costs because the development is simpler? And would it be a way for developers that aren't yet experienced in those other frameworks that I view as more complicated for them to get involved in development because this is so much simpler for them to learn?
0: One of the things that I really like about Svelte is that when I look at the outputted code in the compiler, it's like code that I would write, and I can understand it. There's not a black box. Right. But like I cannot be bothered going and learning about how the React virtual DOM works and reading all that code. I mean, that's, it's like, I'm getting something that I, a, a, a simple car that I can maintain for the long term versus some very complicated car that, you know, I, I just, if something goes wrong, I need to go to, you know, it's like being in, being in the wild and, and like, would you rather have a Ferrari or a canoe, you know, so.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. And as we know, these other frameworks are not getting simpler. They're adding more and more features.
0: Yeah. I wonder if other frameworks could become like Svelte.
1: Yeah, I I certainly think that they could do that. But the use of a virtual DOM is a very fundamental part of of React and Vue. And so that would be quite a change for them to say, yes, we've seen the light, and we're going to rewrite our framework and not use a virtual DOM.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so if you watch... It's, it's, um, it's just one of those things that... Yeah, you go.
1: I, I was going to point out that uh, the creator of Svelte, Rich Harris, has given many talks about the origins of Svelte and what his motivations were. And there's a particular talk that's really popular called Rethinking Reactivity. And he really lays out the case for why using a virtual DOM is a bad thing. And so I'd encourage anyone that has some doubts about that being a significant feature to watch that talk, rethinking reactivity and see what you think about a virtual DOM after hearing Rich explain why that's not such a good approach.
0: Okay, so um, what, fe- what would you say is a feature that's missing from Svelte?
1: Yeah, so probably the biggest thing that you'll hear mentioned uh, today is that it doesn't have really good support for TypeScript. So especially for people coming from Angular and to some extent also from React, if you're used to using TypeScript, you might find that troubling. So it's not the case that you can't use any TypeScript in Svelte, it's just that it isn't really supported out of the box. And there's a pre-processing setup you can do to say that before the compiler grabs a hold of my Svelte components, I want it to run through this preprocessor and do some things. And so one of those things could be running through the TypeScript compiler. But it can only do that for the, um, the script part of a component. And so what does that not include? Well, that's the HTML part where you can have uh, snippets of code to uh, uh, evaluate JavaScript expressions. So they haven't yet come up with a way of evaluating TypeScript for that part. So what that means is that all of the functions you write in a component can be very type safe using TypeScript, but the calls to those functions that would be within the HTML part of the component wouldn't be checked to make sure that they're passing the right kinds of values to those functions. So I guess you could say that Svelte has partial TypeScript support now, but it's kind of not officially supported yet. But it's well known in the Svelte right. community that this is a feature that people really want. So that's the biggest issue. Another issue might be that mm-hmm. the support for IE isn't particularly strong. Yeah. Uh, Good. <laughs> I think that's n- not a concern for a lot of people. But if you, yeah. for example, really need to support, say, uh, IE 9 or 10, uh, that may be problematic For IE11, there are some uh, uh, things that you can use, some uh, polyfills that will help that along. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's not a place I want to be in particularly, so I'm hoping that most of my new apps don't have that kind of requirement. And then a third thing I would point out is that the other frameworks, having been around much longer have kind of a wealth of libraries, especially component libraries that you could use as a starting point for an app. Yep. And there are some of those for felt, for Svelte, but just not quite as many yet. And I think that's just a matter of time before more of those things show up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's also also going to be kind of hard to hire for Svelte. I don't know what do you think about that. Is it, is it hard to get a hold of developers that can do Svelte? Yeah, it may be hard to find
1: developers that already know it well, but if you can find developers that are uh, up for learning it, I think it's a very small uh, amount of time required for them to come up to speed. I would think that uh, any developer that has some experience in web development could be pretty productive and svelte after just a couple of days, and I've seen that happen within my own company. The people that I've introduced it to have really latched onto it after just a couple of days.
0: Oh, that's that's quite surprising. And these these were developers that were from React or uh, React
1: and Vue both. Yes. Uh
0: huh. Okay.
1: Yeah. So I would say a good example of this is uh, think about what you have to do in a component in any framework to define what is the state of that component. So in the React ecosystem uh, nowadays, the answer everyone wants to give is that you just use a, a hook. You just use the use state hook and that defines the state of your component. And so sure. then uh, how do you work with that? And then you have to explain that the use state hook returns to you an array where the first thing is the current value and the second thing is a function you can call to update it. All kinds of uh, rules around how to properly use that. So contrast that with how you would explain to someone how to represent the state inside a Svelte component. You would just say to them, The state is your top-level variables. If you say uh, let date equals something, that's a part of the state of your component just because you made it a top-level variable. Uh, And then someone might say, well, what if I wanna change that state, how do I do it? The answer is you assign a new value to it. That's it. You don't call a function. You just assign a new value to it. And if any part of your component is using that for rendering something, it's going to know to update that part of the DOM just because you assigned a new value to that variable.
0: So, like, with React, useEffect, it allows you to share functionality quite well because, basically, it, it's a function. that takes a state and performs operations on it without any hooks or anything like that. Could something like use effect be be done similarly with Svelte? Right. Uh, So Svelte also has
1: what they call lifecycle functions. So there's uh, on-mount and there's on-update, there's on-destroy. And so you can write those functions in a component, but you could also write a function in a separate JavaScript file that you import into a component. And then those could yeah. be shared between multiple components, and so that's kind of the same as how it works with React hooks—how you can share hooks right. between multiple components. You could share these lifecycle functions in the same way.
0: Right, I got you, got you. So, in day-to-day Svelte development, what are like some of the most attractive features of Svelte? Is it like is it just less code, or just like reactivity, yeah. two-way binding, scope styles?
1: Yeah, so all of that comes into play. So uh, let me talk just a bit about the uh, reactivity part. And I kind of was discussing that already, how if I just make a change to a variable uh, that's a top-level one, then that's updating the state of my component. But I might have a variable that I need to be updated whenever certain other variables change. And this gets into kind of the reactivity part And so Svelte has chosen to uh, latch on to a part of JavaScript syntax that is rarely used, and that is labeled statements. So uh, uh, a word followed by a colon, well, that's a label in JavaScript, but in Svelte, if the word you choose is a dollar sign, dollar sign, colon, that marks a reactive statement. And what that does is it says, if any of the variables I reference in this statement have their value changed, I wanna run this bit of code again. So often those reactive statements are assigning to a variable. And if you think about, for example, uh, one that comes from the book, I'm uh, calculating a a monthly loan payment. And so if the number of months in the loan change or if the interest rate changes, uh, those mean I need to recalculate that loan amount. And so I can, uh, I can define that with just a single line of code that says dollar colon, and then the formula for computing that monthly payment. And so I know that if the terms of the loan change, that's gonna get recalculated. And then if I'm rendering that monthly payment, well, that's gonna update in the DOM too. So that's the reactivity part or a portion of it that it's really easy for me to say, I wanna re-execute this code. If anything, this uses changes. Interestingly, another uh, thing that you can do with that is to help with debugging, because I could use dollar colon on a console log statement and know that anything I'm logging, it's going to log it again if there's a change. So that's all within a component. That's cool. Uh, I'm not trying Yeah.
0: That.
1: Yeah. So that's a big part of what makes day-to-day development easy. Uh, another one I should mention is how state works across components. And so the best way to do this in Svelte is to use what they call a writable store. And so I would normally define this in a separate JavaScript file, not inside my component because I wanna share it across components. So a lot of times you would name that file stores.js and inside that file, you would call this writable function and you pass to it what you wanna start with as your value. And then you assign that to a variable and then you're gonna export that variable. And now any of my components can import that. And so they always get to see the current value. And if it changes, they'll be notified. And so it's kind of like a pub sub mechanism where all my components now have subscribed to this store, knowing that they'll get the new value if it changes. And then any of those components could uh, call methods on that store to change the value. And there are two of them that are provided out of the box. There's a set method. So you could say, I wanna set it to this new value. And again, all the other components that are subscribed to it will get that update. And you can also call update on the store and you pass to that a function. And then that function will be given the current value. And your job is to use that value to compute the new one so you can see how easy this is compared to something like Redux. All I have to do is create these writable stores, give it an initial value, export it, and then all of my components, they import it, they always get updated if the value changes, and they can change it if they want using those set and update methods.
0: So I was I was talking a little bit about um, the stores in, in the first Svelte meetup I did in Vienna, and uh, one of the guys came up to me afterward and says, how do we do time travel in Svelte? And I didn't have a good answer for him because when you're not using Redux, we don't have a th- obviously this time travel thing. So yeah, how would you that, answer that hard question? Yeah,
1: that's interesting. When I st- first got into Redux, I thought that that was a really cool capability to do the time travel debugging. Yeah. And uh, over time, it turned out I used it less and less. And uh, eventually, I never really used the time travel part where I wanted to update the UI to some past state. All I wanted to do is look at what was in the current state. Uh, So eventually, I didn't rely on that feature at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when I wrote my context easy library for React... That, of course, didn't have time travel debugging, but it turned out that if I could just set a flag that I called log and make it so whenever that was set, if I changed what was in the context, it just wrote it to the DevTools console, that that was good enough for me. Yeah, And, and so I'm feeling like based on that experience, I, I wouldn't be missing time travel debugging that much. And if I wanted, I could write a Svelte store that is a custom store, and that's where you kind of layer on top of one of the provided stores to do something custom. And yeah. so, in this case, I could make it so that anytime I change the value, I again log it to the DevTools console. So I feel like yeah. for most cases, that would be good enough for me.
0: Yeah, I guess you could also like in terms of uh, Redux. The 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 only time I really really appreciated was when i had a really complicated wizard where when i was developing it i couldn't be bothered going back all through all the steps and what i was doing i was exporting the redux state and then there was some kind of plugin that that re-imported it on the browser refresh but i guess if you you were quite smart you could you could do a similar thing with svelte you know so you could store all the the state somewhere you'd be a custom thing
1: Right. So a kind of a related example that is in the book is how you can create a custom writable store that always saves the data in session storage in the browser so that if you refresh the browser, you don't lose any of that state. It just retrieves it from there after the refresh and you're back where you started from. So that's kind of related, yeah. showing that you can write a store that saves the data wherever you choose.
0: That'd be great. Is that on NPM or whatever?
1: It's not. It turns out it's so simple. It's just a few lines of code. It's like not even worth releasing to npm. So uh, you'd be yeah. surprised
0: the amount of people that wouldn't even bother doing that, my friend. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, what um, kind of syntax is felt support for defining uh, what what components will, will render?
1: Yeah. So for the most part it's just straight html but of course you'll want to have some logic mixed in there like perhaps you want to iterate through an array of objects and then render some data from them and so svelte chose to use a kind of mustache like syntax and i think for some people initially this is a bit of a turnoff to them because they feel like that mustache syntax was something from the past and now it's back again Uh, but for the past yes For me, that was a very short-lived concern. And I think a concern with learning any new framework is how much new syntax is there that I have to get comfortable with here. And I would say that in Svelte, it's a really small amount. So uh, really all there is, is there's an if statement that you use with this mustache-like syntax for conditional logic. Then there's an each statement for iterating through things. And there's an await that you use to wait for a promise to resolve. Uh, And that's really it for that new syntax. So, uh, you know, I mentioned only taking a couple of days to come up to speed. Well, that's why, because there's not a lot of new syntax. The rest of the file is a lot of uh, standard uh, JavaScript, standard CSS, standard HTML. Uh, You also tend to just write JavaScript functions. You're not creating classes. You're not creating objects that have methods attached to them. Most of the code is just plain JavaScript functions.
0: And, and the more code that you add in an application, I'm just speaking in general now, the more complicated it is to maintain, the harder for new developers to go in the process. So long term, it, this is sort of future-proofing your, your code because even though the Svelte framework isn't you know, as popular as these big frameworks right now, or maybe it, it's certainly growing fast. In a sense, the code that you write from, from, for Svelte could be ported to another framework down the road whenever relatively easier
1: Right, certainly all the plain functions you've written, you would think that that code would just live on. It's not in a form that's specific to a framework. So for example, in the React framework, before we were able to define components with just functions, we had to extend from a class, extend from the React class. So uh, fortunately, you don't have to do that anymore in React, but Angular is still that way where it's a class-based way of defining components. Uh, And then in the view world, you define uh, an object literal that def- tells you everything about a component. I know that that's changing in Vue three. It'll be more function based in Vue three, uh, but that's a thing that I really like about Svelte is that in general I'm just writing plain JavaScript functions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what about like um, uh, like com- conditional logic and, and iteration? Right, so that, that's the pound
1: sign if and the pound sign each. Uh, so the each says, uh, here's a collection I wanna iterate over. And, and as you visit each thing, I wanna put it in this variable that comes after the uh, of part. So it's uh, pound sign each, name of the collection of, and then some variable. Yeah. Uh, and then there's also a, a, an else syntax on that so that you could say, if there's nothing in this array, then I wanna render this thing instead. And that's sort of related to the way await works. So await, you give it a promise and it's waiting for that to resolve. But there's a section where you can say, I want to render this until it resolves. And then when it resolves, I get that data. And then this is what I want to render. And if it rejects, this is the way I want to display the error. And so there's three sections of an await that you can specify.
0: Okay, so see, imagine, um I'm working, I've got this thing in GitHub called Svelte, Svelte Stark Starter and I'm using Firebase, but I, because I'm not using Sapper, I don't have the initial render with the state, you know, for like if the user's been followed or not. So imagine I load a page called profile of somebody else's profile and there, there's going to be like a, a UI component that renders something like follow or unfollow, depending on what the state is. But the state won't be known until there's like a server server call. So, I'm thinking, how do I do this? I don't really want to have um i guess I'll position this thing absolutely so the page doesn't move around when the page is loading, but I guess I don't want to render anything until the um the uh the backend tells me whether or not I'm following something so that could be done in a sense using the async thing, yeah.
1: That's right, yeah, so I can say in my async that there's nothing to render until it resolves, and then when it resolves, I can give it separate things to render based on whether it resolves or rejects. And so in a component that is doing this, I could use the mount lifecycle function to make my REST call, and to do that, I could just use the fetch API that's built into the browser. Yeah. So the result of that is gonna give me a promise, so I'll immediately be setting a variable that is part of the scope of my part of the state of my component to be that promise. and then down in the HTML I could use the await. Uh, and I think I stated that a bit incorrectly. I wouldn't actually have to use on mount in this case. I could just have a plain JavaScript function that returns the promise I get by calling the fetch API. and again, I put that in a variable that is part of the state of my component and then that's what I reference in the pound sign await syntax,
0: right. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna bash at this and and get back to you a few days on the road and and you can you can mark my attempt as, as correct or not. And, okay. Because uh, <laughs> I've not used to that. I, I've, I've basically what I've been doing before is I've ha- I've had a variable called is promise pending, and then is promise complete, and I've been using I've been sort of manually manipulating those. So I don't I not have any. Um, I wasn't using the weight the weight handle, but I want I want to try oh, it. Yeah. out. yeah. But uh, definitely. Yeah, we can clean that up. It. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So, um, so how does the, the Svelte components handle like state within themselves?
1: Yeah, so that's the part where you just declare top-level variables that end up representing your state, and that's kind of the end of the story. You get to render that. If they change, you know your component's going to re-render the parts that need to, so it's all just very automatic. It's just a matter of defining top-level variables that you want to represent the state of your component.
0: How do you feel about this sort of two-way binding? Because back in the flex days, Adobe flex, there was like a lot of two-way binding, and then everybody says, "No, we shouldn't do. We shouldn't be doing two-way binding. We should be one one-way data flow." So now we seem to go, be going back to two-way binding again. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I guess I feel
1: okay about it in Svelte because if you look at the generated code, you'll see that it's really doing the one-way binding thing under the covers. It looks like two-way binding in your code, but the generated code. Is really doing the same things as if you had set it up to to do one-way binding, uh, so it feels pretty safe to me. And boy,
0: is it convenient! But don't you think, like, if the if you manage some huge application written in felt, then you could get side effects that you, you just would find hard to predict. And right. how would you, you start- avoid that? Would you just tell everybody? Do-
1: yeah, you can get yeah. into that situation. I think the trick is to. Uh, not be binding to things that come from a different component. So if it's all contained in that one component, uh, then it's easy to reason about. Uh, There's nothing really built into Svelte to stop you from going beyond that. So for example, if I'm passing a prop from one component to another, I can choose to use the bind syntax so that in the child component, if I make a change to it, that change propagates back to the parent. And uh, so I could do that through as many levels as I want, uh, binding a property uh, through a bunch of layers. And then we'd be in the situation that you're describing where it could be hard to track that down. So Mm. certainly there's some uh, responsibility on the developer's part to not go crazy with the binding. Yeah. But most uses that I've seen of it in Svelte really are restricted to within a single component.
0: Right, because typically I'm working with clients with massive, massive sites and websites. And uh, I'm trying to figure out how best to sell them because I, I, I really enjoy using felt myself. So I wonder if like, because stores are sort of the global state in a sense that you can pass them around. I wonder if there could be r- rules within the stores to see what components can update it.
1: Well, you certainly can do some validation there. So yeah. it doesn't it doesn't have to be the case that your stores are global. That's a convenient thing to do. But uh, suppose you have a large component hierarchy in your application, and a particular store really only matters to a subset of that component hierarchy. Well, what you can do is the top of that bit of the hierarchy that cares about it, that could be the one that creates the store, and it can make that store available to all of its descendants in other ways. It could pass the store to them through a prop, or it could use another mechanism called Context which only makes things available to descendant components. And so that's a way I could have my store be scoped to just a subset of the components.
0: These are really fantastic answers. You've always thought about this a lot. (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So another thing that we haven't touched on, a way of sharing data between components, is to use events. And so there's a function in Svelte called create event dispatcher. And so any component can call this. And what you get back is a dispatch function. And what you pass to that is a name of an event and then any data you want to be associated with it. And this is a way that you can create custom events. So uh, events are more than just, say, a click event on a button. You can make up any event you want and dispatch them. But interestingly, in Svelte, these events only go to the parent. They don't have a sort of... uh, uh, bubbling and capture phase like DOM events do. They just go one level. The parent could choose to dispatch it again up to its parent, but you have to be more explicit
0: about that. Right, right. Okay, so that's a, another way of doing something versus something that, like, the the parent component could import an exported property from the, the, the child component and do the same thing.
1: Right, but it only is going to get something back if it binds to that prop. And so earlier, we were talking about problems you could get into in in using a lot of this two-way binding. So an alternative is rather than try to pass data back through a prop, dispatch an event instead.
0: And and under the hood, that, that doesn't use native events.
1: Uh... I think you've stumped me on that I don't know the answer to that question <laughs> well, I guess the
0: only way to do it would be to test on the uh, check the generated code in a sense
1: right I don't so, so, think it's
0: using native
1: events but I'm not
0: entirely confident on that well uh, if it did I it would, it would just be using stop stop um, propagation right uh, to stop that going up but um, yeah who knows right who knows
1: Rich Harris knows <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, and and the other and the core contributors. Oh, well, here's a funny story, by the way. In one of the meetups in Vienna, um, it, it was quite a, a quiet one. We're having lunch, and I was I was kind of explaining the basics of Svelte to the guys, you know. And the one in my audience were like, was, was giving me about really good answers and quite like responses. And then I said, "Well, what's your name on GitHub?" And I looked up on GitHub, and then it turns out he was like the number three contributor to the Svelte. I'm like, <laughs> "Oh wow, It's <laughs> <laughs> a small world," you know. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. So um. So how, how how can Svelte components like communicate apart from just like events and um like uh, stores export and variables?
1: Yeah. So there's really five mechanisms that it provides. So we've talked about props. Usually props are just going from a parent to a child component, but if the parent Uh, binds to that, then it can get the data back up as well. Uh, Slots are a way that a parent component can provide content that a child component can choose to render. In fact, it could render it multiple times if it wanted to. And there's a default slot, but you can also have named slots. And so that's a concept that a lot of the other frameworks have as well. Uh, We talked about events as a way of passing uh, notification that a thing happened in a child back to a parent, and there can also be data associated with that. Uh, Context is going in the opposite direction from events. Context data only goes downward to the descendants of that component, so it's not global. Uh, And then stores can be global if you choose to make them that, but you can use those other mechanisms as a way of sharing a store. You could pass a store via a prop, or make a store available through context.
0: Is the context similar
1: to the React context? Uh, I would say, uh, like many things in Svelte, it's far simpler. So the way that you define a context in Svelte is you just say, I want to set a context with this name, and here's the data I want to put in it. (laughs) And then when you get down in some descendant component, you say, I want to know what the value of this context is that has a certain name. And it just walks upward through the hierarchy to find the nearest ancestor that defined that context with that name. So it's uh, very easy to understand what's happening there. Context is somewhat limited, though, compared to all the other features in that it can only give you data that is known at the time the context was created, and that has to be at the time the component is uh, kind of instantiated. And the big thing to point out there is that context is not reactive, and that means that if I set a value in a context with a certain name, I can't later change the value and expect that things that were looking at that context will get notified that something changed. So it's kind of a one-time situation. It's more for configuration kind of data to let descendant components know that you've decided to be configured in a certain way. Uh, if you want something to be more active and to get notification about changes, that's where you really need to use stores instead of context.
0: Okay, cool, cool. So let's um let's go back to animations. Uh, well web developers know about like CSS3 animations and, and like keyframes and uh, and animate properties. So what what does Svelte give us here?
1: Yeah, so in my experience a lot of developers <laughs> skip the step of adding animations to their application just because it's kind of tricky to do and maybe they're not familiar with how to do that in CSS. So mm. Svelte gives us a bunch of animations out of the box and All you do is import them and then attach it to some HTML element and it's done. And so these animations uh, have certain properties that you can adjust, like what is the lifespan of this animation? Should it take place over 500 milliseconds or three seconds? Should it start immediately or should it delay a bit before it begins? And then what kind of easing function do you want to use? Is it kind of a linear animation or does it progress along some sort of a curve? And so there are a bunch of easing functions that are built in and a bunch of animations that are built in. And if you wanna go beyond that, it turns out it's really easy to write your own animations and it's really easy to create custom easing functions. So this all came about because Rich Harris formerly worked at the Guardian newspaper and now works at the New York Times. And his job is to produce interactive graphics for the newspaper. So he's under tight deadlines to get these things done. And they want a lot of animations for their website that is showing these graphics. So he really needed this for his work and we're all benefiting that he's taken the time to put this capability uh, into Svelte. So just to give you an example of one of the animations, there's one that is called Flip. And Flip, you might guess that it takes something and it flips it, but that's not what it does at all. Uh, instead, Flip is an acronym for something that I've forgotten. Uh, But basically what it's doing is it's saying, When a change happens to this HTML element that causes it to be in a different location on the page, rather than just jump to the new location, I want it to animate from where it used to be to where it's going to be next. And so you'll see things sliding around in the browser. So if you imagine that you have a bunch of elements that have a display inline blocks so that they can just go one right after another on a row. And when it hits the end of the row, they just wrap around to the next line. Well, if i apply a flip animation to all of those things and then i delete one of those elements all the other ones are going to shift uh to the left and fill up the unoccupied space and That's the first, so cool. yeah the first one that was on the second row it now becomes the last one on the first row and it's going to animate to get there and so you'll see everything slide around and rearrange all simultaneously And all I did was import the flip function and attach it to one uh, HTML element that happened to be in a loop, so I could render a bunch of these things. And that's it. That's all the work I have to do to get that really interesting animation.
0: It must do some really smart stuff under the hood with like initial positions or something, or like I don't know how it does it. Right. So it it is compiler output.
1: Yeah, it is really interesting. And what you'll find if you dig into it, I think some people hear about this and they think, I wonder if those animations are slow because there's probably a lot of JavaScript code that's doing these calculations and and implementing the animation. But it turns out that's not it at all. You mentioned CSS animations earlier, and that's exactly what's happening here. All of these built-in animations are just CSS animations under the hood. And so it's your browser's ability to perform those that makes these things really efficient. And there's very little code behind it because it was already a part of the browser to
0: do these things. I'm definitely going to make a video on my compiler series on the uh, on YouTube to on, on looking at the output code for that because I'm really curious now. Cool. Yes,
1: yes. And that's what makes it really easy to implement your own animations because all you're doing is describing uh, some CSS animation. So one example that I have in the book is one where if I remove an element from the DOM, I want it to appear like that element is going down a drain. And so this animation will take that element and it will spin it around two times, And while it's spinning, it will reduce its scale so it gets smaller and smaller as it spins, and it looks like it went down a drain. (laughs) The amount of code I had to write for that, it's crazy how little I needed because all I had to do was describe a CSS transformation that does rotation and scaling, and I was done.
0: All right. Okay. So in terms of, like, um, it's not Ember where we have, like, Ember data that automatically does fetching of data on the backend, does Svelte have any support for like REST stuff?
1: Right, so there's nothing out of the box other than that await construct that I talked about that waits for a promise to resolve. Uh, My take on this through all my experience with React is that the fetch API is really good. It's not hard to use. And so that's the approach with Svelte as well. You could use other libraries like Axios if you prefer those. Uh, but for me, I find Fetch so easy to use that I've just relied on that.
0: Yeah, and Axis will probably give you several kilobytes of extra payload, probably bigger than the Svelte application.
1: Could be, yes. Yes, that's right.
0: Okay, so what about testing? unit testing and end-to-end tests? I haven't written any yet, so maybe you, maybe you have.
1: Yeah, so when I first started getting into Svelte, uh, after I got excited about it, then I started looking into how to write tests and I was immediately discouraged because when I looked out on the website, uh, there's a fact that basically says they haven't spent much time looking at testing approaches yet. In the uh, in Sapper, which we could talk about in just a bit, it comes with uh, Cypress testing for end to end tests kind of built in, but there's nothing like that in Svelte and no recommended way of implementing unit test. And so I was thinking for a bit, maybe I need to abandon my interest in this because if I can't write test, I will never be able to sell anybody on using it. So I spent a lot of time looking into whether it would be possible to use Jest because I was familiar uh, with using Jest from my React development. And it turns out you can easily do that. In fact, someone else has already created the library, Svelte testing library, which is like React testing library. So both of those you can use in conjunction with Jest. And so I wrote a fairly long article on Svelte when I was first learning it. And one section of that article shows in great detail how to set up unit tests for Svelte components using Jest and the Svelte testing library. And then I also have an example that shows how to write end-to-end tests for a Svelte app uh, using Cypress. And so I would say that those are features that are not yet well documented, but all the pieces are there, and so I think my article describes them pretty well, and of course the book is going to include a chapter that goes over all of that.
0: Cool. So the um, the other part of the Svelte world is sapper. Have you done much with that, and what what do you think of it, if you have...
1: Yeah, so I've experimented with that quite a bit so that I could learn about the features. And I would say that it's kind of similar to the relationship between React and Next or the relationship between Vue and the Nuxt framework. It's just something that layers on top of Svelte to add more features. And so for all of these features that it adds, you could do the same things with Svelte if you want to. It's just that you'd have to configure all of that and write more code to set it up. So if you want these additional features and you choose to use Sapper, you just get these things for free. And when I say these things, it's kind of a handful of things to talk about. So uh, one of them is page routing. And so this is where I want to have multiple pages in my application. And when I switch to a different page, I want the URL to change so that I could bookmark a page within the app or jump straight to one. And you can do this in Svelte, and in the book, I go over a number of approaches for doing it. But if you choose to use Sapper, that's just something that's built in. And all you have to do is place Svelte components in a certain directory, and they become the pages of your app. Uh, And there's examples of how to set up the links to those pages, and then you could just maybe customize the styling if you don't like the way it is out of the box. And so page routing in Sapper is really easy. Uh, A second benefit that you might want is to get some server-side rendering. And so Sapper does this uh, out of the box just for the first page that you visit. And it could be any page of your app. So once you've got uh, routes and there's a separate URL for each page, when you start up a new session, whatever page you hit first, that one is gonna be rendered on the server. And so it'll come back to you quickly adjust the HTML, and so the user gets a good first-page experience, and then the rest of the pages will end up being client-side rendered.
0: Nice one. Yeah, I mean, Sapper's pretty, pretty powerful. I wonder if they'll be like... The team seems to be pretty focused on the Svelte side of things right now. Um Yeah, there's been some question about that
1: on the uh, Discord uh, chat, which is where the Svelte developers gather. And there's a separate Sapper channel channel there. And I've asked about this. Why is it that there haven't been very many commits in the Sapper repo? And the answer I got back is that that's not being abandoned or, or ignored, really. It's just that there are Svelte issues that they'd like to address first. Plus, there have been a lot of proposals on how things could be done differently in Sapper, And so they right. want to take, take time to decide what the direction should be before they jump in and implement any of that. But that certainly is a concern that some people have, that Svelte seems very mature now, and it's it's past its 1.0 release. But Sapper is still zero point something for its version, indicating that there still could be significant changes. Um so, but the way that you work with Sapper is so close to the way that you work with Svelte that I wouldn't be too nervous about writing an application that uses it. You just have to be aware going in that there could be some significant changes to Sapper coming down the line.
0: Yeah, I played about with it a little bit. I, I really liked it. I mean, I could, I could debug on the node side, I could uh, debug on the client side, and I uh, understood quite reasonably easily about how the, uh, the prefetch. Uh, Script works and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, that is a topic. We really should touch on a few more features of Sapper that I haven't mentioned And so you said prefetching and that kind of goes along with the code splitting feature So one thing you'll, you'll notice about Sapper Svelte gives you a small bundle size But it's way smaller even when you're using Sapper because it only gives you the code you need for the current page so when you hit that first page Uh, you're just getting the JavaScript that that page needs, and you're mostly getting pre-rendered HTML. For the second page, you're getting the JavaScript code that is needed to render that page and any of its functionality, but you haven't gotten any code yet for the third page. And so that's code splitting, and it's really easy when you look at what is generated for a Sapper app to see all these separate JavaScript uh, files that got generated for each of the pages. And then you mentioned prefetching, so uh, a part of this is that when you visit a page, uh, you want to gather up maybe data from REST services that you need for that page. But you also can do this trick where you say, if I hover the mouse over a link that would take me to a different page when I click it, maybe that ought to be a clue that I'm about to visit that page. <laughs> and Wouldn't it be more optimal if I go ahead and not only download the code for that page, but if that page is going to call a REST service, why don't I go ahead and kick off that call before the user has even clicked the button? Yeah, And you might, might think that that doesn't really give you much benefit because how much time is there between hovering over the button and actually clicking it? But it turns out that's something that can matter to make a page come up faster. And that's just built into Sapper. You just say, yes, I want that
0: functionality, and it'll do that for you. I'll it, it, play around with it in, in that 100 milliseconds. It makes it feel like it's a, a local app that's been downloaded, but it's actually it's it's server-side. You know, it's, it's, it's a really clever, clever solution.
1: Yes, yes, definitely. Um, another thing we haven't talked about is that when you opt into using Sapper, if you want, you can render the backend services in Sapper as well. Sapper refers to those as server routes, and so they have to be Node based because Sapper is Node based. But if you're up for implementing your REST services in Node, you can just do it within that same framework.
0: Yeah, I, I and I first started writing my um one of my apps in in, in uh, well. I'm working on this thing called Mentor CV, which uh, I haven't had time to really do it. But uh, um, I started off with Sapper, but I was I was starting to like use more Firebase stuff, and then I was like, all this state and Firebase can be done on the client. So, um, eventually I want to get back to using Sapper, but in the moment I've I've kind of not done it for a while. But it's yeah. certainly powerful.
1: Yeah, but I would say for me. I wouldn't decide whether I want to use Sapper based on whether I want to implement these node-based rest services because even if I don't want to do that I would still benefit from the page routing and the server-side rendering and the code splitting I just wouldn't be implementing my services in Sapper. Yeah. And there's one last bit of functionality from Sapper worth mentioning is that that is that it can do static site generation for you. So when you export a Sapper site, what you're telling it to do is start at the first page and see what links are there and crawl all of those links and those pages might have other links. Just visit every page you can get to and generate HTML for every one of those pages. And that's your static site. So you could use this as an alternative to other static site generators like Jekyll and Hugo and Gatsby, all of those things you could do this in Sapper instead.
0: Ah, uh, that that reminds me of what I was trying to do with Mentor CV. I was trying to do a static site export, but I couldn't get State to work very well, like authentication. So that's why I went pure client. Uh, but, right. that's that's only because I was using Netlify, and I didn't want to. I couldn't figure out how to use something like Google Cloud Run, and I couldn't be bothered to start my own hosting on Node some some Node server and doing some DevOps, So that's why I just did the the easy route sure. right now. You know. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Cool. Okay, so I guess we'll um, get on the hour here. So, what about um, one thing that's huge in London is React Native, and there's um, something called, uh, I think it's Svelte, Svelte Native, right? So, how how is that going and working out right now?
1: Yeah, so I've done a bit of React Native development myself. I I like it quite a bit. But in the same way that I find Svelte to be easier to work in than React, I find Svelte Native to be a bit easier than React Native just because I get to implement Svelte components instead of React components. So one way that it differs is that Svelte Native is built on top of the native script platform. And that's good because that's a very mature platform. There are other... Frameworks that also tie into native script. You could use Vue with native script. I think there might be a way to use Angular with it as well. I'm not sure. Uh, but just like Sapper, this is an area that is still maturing. Uh, so there may be some issues you'd run into, but I, I have a feel from what I've seen so far that if you're not writing a very complicated mobile app, it's probably fine, and it'll just be getting better all the time. So I think it's certainly worth a look to see if there's an easier way to develop your mobile apps than uh, certainly having to write native code, like writing in Swift or writing Java code and and creating native apps. It's way easier than that. And I I really think it's on par with React Native as far as the ease of
0: development. think React Native, the tooling can seem quite difficult and so many times you get a red skin of death on, on the devices, you know? like
1: Yeah. Is what that, I've that? done that has made that much easier for me is to use Expo. So with React Native, you have a choice of using their native CLI or you can use Expo. It just seems so much easier to me if you use Expo, but there is a problem with that, and that is that if you need to implement some uh, native mobile components or interact with things that aren't directly supported in Expo, then you just can't do it, and then you'll have to eject and go back to the uh, native React Native way of doing it. Uh, But as much as I can, if I'm gonna do something with React Native, I like to do it through Expo. Cool.
0: Well, that's... uh... That's a lot of svelte talk we talked about there. A solid hour. <laughs> That's enough for a whole meetup almost. Well, yes. <laughs> but by now we were going to be going for pizza, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. So what do you what do you do when you're not like um, coding, writing books? Yeah, so I
1: do a lot of running. I've run a lot of marathons, I'm trying to run a marathon in all fifty states in the U.S. I'm not quite there. I'm stuck at thirty nine at the moment. Has that uh, been so done do- before? Oh, yeah. A lot of people have done that. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, I just like learning about new computer-related tech. Yeah. So I've got a bit of a break in, in writing the book now. I've had a few days where I, I didn't have to do anything. And so I've started diving into another topic, and that is a static site generator called Eleven D, spelled uh, one-one-T-Y. I found that really interesting, uh, so anytime I need to generate a static site, I'll have to choose between whether I want to look to Sapper for doing that or whether I want to take this approach. Certainly one of the approaches of this static site generator compared to others is that it's very simple in terms of the, the syntax that you write. You can just use Markdown and you can sprinkle in logic using template languages like uh, Nunchucks is one example. Very easy to learn. And so if you compare that to other static site generators where maybe you're going to be implementing React components or Svelte components or Vue components, or you're gonna write some code in the Go programming language, this just seems so much
0: easier. Uh, there's what, not what, that. It, is that a node-based thing? It is, yes. Right. What do you think about Deno?
1: Oh yeah, I, I'm interested to see where this goes. Uh, a lot of people would like more support for TypeScript in all parts of the Node ecosystem. And so uh, that's certainly one thing we would get from, from Deno is uh, having good TypeScript support built in. As I understand, there's a lot of work left to do to get near the maturity of Node now and have all the library support. But I'm certainly interested in diving into that when it's ready to
0: use. Dude, so fast. You see, I've, like, it makes Node modules look like, you know... The way it just downloads those standard libraries you it's um I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah. Uh, I did have to I did have to like try to do something basic that like I normally do in Express and I ended up in our talking to one of the core devs and he's like, Yeah, hack this, hack this. So <laughs> it is huh. quite it is quite young.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. And what's the other thing I want I w I wanna I wanna try? Rust. I wanna try Rust at some point.
1: Yeah, I looked into that a couple of years ago, maybe a year and a half ago, I was feeling like I needed to learn some new programming language. And so I looked at a bunch of them and I was down to trying to choose between learning Rust or learning Go. I ended up choosing Go because I decided that the Rust syntax was just too strange for me. And uh, I felt like I wouldn't be able to convince enough people at work to use it. And so I'd spend all this time learning it and not get a chance to because the learning curve is too high um so then i spent a lot of time learning go uh, and then and it ended up concluding that i wasn't really happy with that either
0: (laughs) so (laughs) i'm back to mostly doing javascript which i still enjoy yeah javascript pays the bills um i think i think deno was written in rust i believe it or not i believe it i believe oh really i think it was yeah
1: for some reason i was thinking it was typescript
0: I uh, no it's uh there's no c++ dependency like node has and rust is like c++ performance wise but it has more safe memory management or something yeah and um yeah speaking of typescript
1: that's a thing we didn't mention is that uh svelte and sapper are implemented in typescript
0: that's right i, I used to be a huge Type- typescript fan but i think that typescript used too much for things that it doesn't really matter too much if you need to use it or not I think that it it matters for projects like a Sapper or a Svelte write it in TypeScript of course or, or a game it's complicated for just like everyday apps like the, the the compiler the JavaScript compiler works quite well but saying that it's pretty bad on on, on, uh, Svelte apps is the 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 IDEs don't have a clue about all these uh, dollar imported variables and things, you know? Right, right, yeah.
1: Yeah, I've spent a fair amount of time using TypeScript on a React project, and so I would say the jury's out on whether I have gained more benefit from the errors that it found for me or whether I wasted more time just trying to satisfy the TypeScript compiler. It's about 50-50 at this point, I think. Yeah,
0: it, if we have Redux, it's horrible, all this types I just really don't want to work on another Redux TypeScript app anymore. No, right, No yes. more. Yes. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, i just passing loads of interfaces around and combining them and stuff like that. Um, but in terms of the Svelte, because the code that's output is like it's none of the code that you're writing in a sense apart from it's been source mapped back is running in the in the browser so the the ides like webstorm i find i just find that it just doesn't have a clue about some of these variables you're importing See like, this is undefined you're not or listen you're not using this so you haven't declared it before um but i put up with it because the pros outweigh the cons
1: Right, and the Svelte compiler is really good about detecting those sorts of things. And there is a, a VS Code extension for Svelte that helps with that as well.
0: Yeah, I found one for, for um, WebStorm. Okay. Well, it looks like uh, we'll have to have you on the show again sometime, Mark. Yeah, that'd be great. It's a really interesting conversation here. And um, Yeah, we could have a talk about 11D someday. <laughs> sounds good. Sounds like a plan. Yeah. Anything else you want to share for our audience before we head wrap up? Uh, I'm looking for conferences to present
1: at on Svelte. Hopefully there'll be a lot of that this year. Uh, I gave a talk on Svelte at the Midwest JS conference last year in Minneapolis. I'm hoping I get a chance to maybe give a workshop on Svelte this year. So that should be around the end of July. But um, I'm open to doing that at other conferences.
0: Sounds good. Cool, well, um, we'll, uh, I'll type up these show notes and uh, we'll get this episode on air pretty soon. Excellent. Well, thanks for having me. Okay, thanks for coming on. Um, It was really good to have you on, Mark. And also thanks for for Manning for um, helping this show um, bring it to you guys on on the internet. And um, that's it from LearnFuzz. See you again shortly. Bye-bye.